Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joined for a special podcast on Ukraine and Belarus by ECFR's co-chair and the former Foreign Minister of Sweden, Carl Bildt, by Vesela Chanova from our Sofia office and Wider Europe programme, and by Kadri Leek, who's also from our Wider Europe programme. We've all just returned from an exciting study trip to Kiev and Minsk, where we met with the Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko, with Maidan activists who are now members of the Ukrainian parliament, think tanks, ministers, representations from the Crimean Tatars and civil society, And in Minsk, we met with the foreign minister, the deputy prime minister, various parliamentarians and representatives from civil society and the opposition. This is quite an important time for for Ukraine at the moment. It hasn't yet crossed its its Rubicon. Um, Some of the most important and urgent decisions on its future, both internal and external, are still ahead. And from an EU perspective, this is going to be a very big month because there's an EU-Ukraine summit in April Uh, There's going to be a major donor conference um, at the end of this month as well. And then we have the the Riga summit in May, which will look at the future of the Eastern Partnership. And there are also critical decisions about uh, support for the Ukrainian economy, including by the IMF, and discussions about the Russian sanctions in the next uh, couple of months as well. So why don't we go right into it and start with uh, the situation in, in Kiev at the moment. Carl, you've uh, been back and forth a lot, uh, both uh, since the the annexation of, of Crimea, but also in the years uh, before that. What did you take away from from our trip? I think the situation in Kiev is amazingly stable and determined, uh, and I say that against the background of the uh, strains and the tensions and the challenges that the country is subject to. Um, there is a sort of basic uh, sort of coordination between the president. And the Prime Minister, they come from different parties, they might have slightly different attitudes at times, but they know that they need each other. One of them concentrating more on the foreign policy security aspects of it, the other one being more responsible for the economic reforms, European integration, uh, going hand in hand, and they've been able to maneuver key issues also through the RADA. Of course, they are now in the, um, the beginning of a new phase, in the sense that it's both implementation of the economic reforms, they have the IMF package in place, or the 17 billion coming from the IMF, and then it's a question of negotiating both bilateral things and sort of debt rescheduling and things like that. And then on the Minsk agreement, uh, both the security aspect of it and eventually implementation of the of the uh, of the political aspects of it. The big uncertainty is, of course, uh, Russia's intentions, with lots of speculation of whether the Russians are going to encourage the separatists to do themselves uh, do further military offensives and that is of course an uncertainty hanging over both the economic and political scene that's the way Mr. Putin wants it probably um, and to a certain extent is unavoidable but a remarkable stable scene in Kiev. It's stable but it felt pretty fragile to me I mean Kadri um, what did you think about the 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 chances of these different things coming together because you on the one hand there is this military situation which is very uncertain we've heard we heard there that there were 1700 violations of the the ceasefire since um 
the Minsk II or Minsk implementation agreement was, was signed. Um, economically, it does feel like the country is, you know, it's hanging by a thread, its economic mm-hmm. situation at the moment. And the politics is uh, behind those two things feel like they're stable at the moment, but it's, uh, it's, it's quite uncertain. There's a lot of tension in the air. Well, maybe I had low expectations, but actually I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised because my last trip to Kiev was uh, in June last year. And back then you could see that some government members had no clue about the situation they were in. And it was very uneven, it, very chaotic picture. Compared to that, the impression we got now was a lot better because I mean, people uh, in the government, they clearly know what their task is and, and how hard it is. But that's, that's already something. They, they know what to do and what takes it to, to get there. Um, I wouldn't really over-dramatize also the economic hardship. I mean, it is there and it's going to get worse. But Ukrainians have been through worse times than that. I remember my first visit to Kiev in 1994, then the woman, um, a friend of a friend with whom I was staying, got, had no salary at all for months on end. And and she survived. I mean, people had their means of feeding themselves, often using products from their summer houses, what have you. So Ukrainians are very resilient. Uh, the one thing that worried me, and I, I'm not quite sure what's the reason of it, is, is some anxiety uh, in the government, or or maybe maybe it's actually in the Western discussion. I mean, this narrative that uh, government cannot reform because people will revolt. Why would they? It's a new government. They haven't been in the office even a year. Even president hasn't been a full year. They have a strong mandate, and, and, and they know where they want to get. People know where they want to get. They ought to be able to articulate a lot more clearly that it will get worse. And I, I think that would go down well with the people. So that shyness uh, is, is something that puzzles me. It, it looks like still the legacy of earlier times when, you know, the, the Maidan leaders, some of whom are now in, in the government or in the president's office, they felt they didn't properly represent the Maidan. Uh, and, and there is some sort of hesitation, bit, I think, between them and the civil society that has entered the parliament. So you two are pretty optimistic about um, what we saw. But Vesla, when we spoke to one of the ministers, they told us that best case scenario, uh, they'll well, worst case scenario, they'll be out on a pitchfork within six weeks. And if things go really well, they'll be out on a pitchfork in, in six months. Um, do you think that that um, there is that much to be optimistic about? And do you think that um, people in Ukraine felt that Europe is supporting them as much as we should do? Definitely not. Uh, the same minister told us that uh, they needed uh, uh, $40 billion US dollars to uh, basically sustain the operation of the state as such for the next five years. Um, which compared to um, some other packages, for example, the Greek one, um, really doesn't seem to be much. And we have to understand that what is at stake in Ukraine is actually not simply to sustain an operation, but to win a major battle. And this is probably the first real battle outside of the European Union that the EU has to win on its own uh, or helping the Ukrainian society. And I think... 
if there is a room for optimism, given the immensity of this task, it's um, due to to the enormous energy that we saw. And I think this is uh, something that reminds us of other places in that region. For me personally, it reminded me a, a lot of Georgia in 2004. Um, the energy is not going to be there forever and it needs to be sustained and there is this moment in time when this energy subsides and then the government has still to continue pushing for reforms and this moment is exactly where you should come in and and help um, uh, sustain the momentum and uh, I think this moment is still ahead of us but not very far um, probably a couple of months away but also, there was a sense of the new and the old Ukraine both being there, Carl. I mean, we, uh, I think all of us went to Georgia shortly after the um, the Rose Revolution and we saw some of the same sort of manic energy amongst the reformers and the optimism. Of, 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 uh, but at the same time, Ukraine combines that with um, a lot of the old power structures still being in place. In fact, just before we went there, there was this big face-off with Kolomoisky, one of the oligarchs um, um, who was there. And one sort of trying to work out where the country's going, because in a way, Poroshenko straddles the old and the new politics. He does, he has seized control of the country. He's participated and spearheaded a real, uh, the birth of a new Ukrainian nation on the one hand, but at the same time he is a, an oligarch, he owns a TV channel, he uh, you know, seems to manage to speak to Putin in a way that very few European leaders uh, are able to and kind of shares a cultural background um, with him in a way that, 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 that we don't. And it's difficult to know whether the new Ukraine is going to emerge triumphant from this and strengthened and people like Poroshenko are going to be midwives for that new Ukraine or whether they're going to end up as disappointed as they were after the, the Orange Revolution in 2004. It's true. There is both old and the new. That's always the case in any, in any, any society. Um, what is remarkable and, and I think um, has come as an unpleasant surprise to, to Moscow is that all of the major economic interests in Ukraine on the side of Ukraine. I mean, if we go back a year and a, year and a half and listen to the Russian agitation against the agreement with the European Union, it said, you're going to lose, um, uh, you're going to be out of business. Uh, so they aim to turn the economic oligarchs and the economic actors against the European agenda of the younger generation of Ukrainians. That failed. Uh, so from that point of view, um, it's good news. Um, then, of course, there's a need for sort of a domestic reform agenda in terms of uh, dealing with what is among the, at least in the European sphere, uh, the most mismanaged of all of the economies of the post-Soviet area. Uh, and that's going to take some time. Uh, but there are islands of excellence, even in the Ukrainian economy. There are huge oceans of corruptions at the same time. Um, but it's not uh, um, it's not undoable, and 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 critical things are happening, primarily on the gas side, because gas and gas transit has been sort of the motherhood uh, of the corrupt elements of the Ukrainian system. That is disappearing to a large extent. They're going to run out of the corrupt money uh, coming from the gas and the gas transit. 
that doesn't sort out all of the problems, but I think it's it's on its way. Uh, but do you th- not worry that that could also end up uh, precipitating the use of pitchforks? Because, I mean, so far, the reforms have been relatively pain-free for, for Ukrainian citizens. They've just well, increased the gas prices before... The, you know, during the summer months, but once um, the winter comes and people start feeling the pain of some of these reforms, is it not going to? No, it's going to be the... no, it's going to be painful. But I, I think as Cardi pointed out, I mean, these are this is not Sweden, this is not the UK. Uh, these are societies that have gone through quite quite a lot of pain. Uh, yeah. they have an element of resilience that we don't have. Add to that that I, I think every Ukrainian understand that they are in. Uh, to put it in sort of blunt language, they're in deep shit. Yeah. And the Russians are trying to sort of make the entire economy go belly up. Yeah. And they understand that there are consequences coming out of this. Yeah. So I think they are prepared to sort of go through the value of TS, not forever, but as long as they feel that there is a, a dedicated and decided political leadership that puts the interest of Ukraine first. Um, I think the time period that they have to really do the reforms is longer than we think, but it's going to be dependent upon the coherence and the strength and the educational capabilities, you might add, of the political leadership in Kiev. Yeah. And what about, how much um, is security going to kind of impinge on that, Kadri? I mean, do you think that there is more that we should be doing on that? One of the things we heard from a lot of the people we spoke to in Kiev about was these breaches of the ceasefire, the need to have monitor, mo- more monitoring, even peacekeepers on the border. Is that something which you think um, would make a big difference? And do you think there is any chance of Europeans doing more on that front? Uh, yes, clearly, I think we should be doing more. We, we should understand that risk aim is not over. I, there seems to be a tendency in Europe to think that the sort of second set of Minsk agreements um, that resolved something and, and the war is now going to be over. Uh, it might, but Russia is, has not given up on its goal of having leverage over Kiev's policy making. And they can switch their means from diplomatic to military to economic and, and back. They are pretty stubborn in their goals and, and pretty flexible in, in their tactics. So we should be pre- prepared for different scenarios. We should, I think, have our own narrative of the Minsk agreements ready and we should make the relevant statements because this agreement is uh, pretty vague on certain crucial points and we have already seen battles over its interpretation flare up. And should it fail, there will be even stronger battle for interpretation of, of who was supposed to do what and whose fault it is that it failed. And also, I think we should really try to secure the contact line or however you call it. Uh, I think it's true that some uh, peacekeepers are monitoring mission, a solid monitoring mission uh, on, on the actual line between the so-called Re- People's Republics and, and Ukraine proper is, is, is highly necessary because that would make it much harder for Russians uh, to, to preach the agreement. And Vesla, do you think that there is going to be any scope to get Europeans to to agree to do that? Because we, you know, it would obviously make it much more difficult for us to turn the other way and to ignore um, uh, breaches of the ceasefire if, if we have troops on the ground, if there are peacekeepers there. The difficulty will be to get the EU to that point. Um, and this is... Um, I think uh, quite a, a big task uh, in the months to come. 
we're going to have uh, in parallel the conversation about Ukraine's economy, the conversation about Ukraine's security, uh, and how to freeze the con the conflict uh, without really talking about this. And the, the third line uh, would be how to keep the unity within the EU, uh, also given um, the need to renew the sanctions in the summer. So the choreography of those three parallel lines uh, uh, will be will be very difficult. And um, I guess the responsibility lies both uh, with the uh, rotating presidency of the EU and with the high representative. And Carl, do you think that there is going to be uh, a uh, opportunity to to agree that our goal is to freeze the conflict because I mean so far rhetorically we're a long way from that but if you go back to both what Vesler and Kadri are saying from a Russian perspective they seem to be quite keen not to freeze the conflict and to to use political and other means the sort of political and other means that Kadri was talking about to to keep their control over what's going on um, within Ukraine unless we're very clear about what it is that we're trying to do it's going to be quite difficult to to get from where we are now to a situation where we can freeze things rather than get trapped into attempts to create a federal structure or other kinds of things which might keep the country in permanent limbo. No, our, our long-term goal, I mean, both, both short-term, intermediate and long-term goal is, of course, to sort of uh, support uh, a stable, democratic, uh, reforming Ukraine, including the territorial integrity and sovereignty of this particular Ukraine. Uh, we don't want the Russians to expand further the perimeter of their enclaves. Uh, you could say that means freeze it where it is. And uh, I don't think anyone foresees a military rollback uh, in the way that the Ukrainians did try last summer. And Putin moved in with the Russian army in big force and prevented that. But then concentrate in that particular aspect on the political aspects of the Minsk agreement with local elections and international heavy supervision and presence and whatever, in order to have uh, a political solution there over time. That might be somewhat naive, uh, but I think that's what we should put on the agenda. Uh, certainly uh, freeze the front lines, I would say, uh, but uh, remain committed to the political goals. It's almost impossible to talk about Ukraine without the word Minsk coming up uh, within the first few seconds of, uh, of a conversation starting. So um, it was both kind of interesting to go to Minsk for that reason, but also because what is happening is not just a Ukrainian crisis, it is a crisis of European order. And I think a core part of our response to, to what happens there has to be a rethinking of how we manage our relationships with all of our eastern neighbours. And uh, Belarus is... Uh, a country which is very European geographically, but is one which is uh, is part of the Eastern Partnership, but it's it's been quite low on the uh, agenda of policymakers for a, for a long time. Mm. Um, but it, you do get a really interesting sense of of what's at stake in Ukraine from uh, from Minsk. Um, how, how much um, do you think countries like uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan and other uh, post-Soviet countries can actually uh, be partners if we want to, to sh shape what Russia does on these issues as well as thinking about uh, what a 
uh, an Eastern European order might look like that gives countries some kind of uh, uh, control over their own future and and the sort of sovereignty which um, we've made a point of, of protecting. Well, it's well known that we have some uh, fairly significant human rights issues with Belarus, as we have with another country, by the way, that should be mentioned, as Azerbaijan. Uh, but they are both countries of a certain strategic importance, and uh, our agenda with them has the important human rights component, but it's slightly wider than that. Um, Belarus also has uh, a right to the territorial integrity and to decide its own course, and there's no question that they have been and are under very significant Moscow pressure. Uh, we should not forget that they resisted that already in 2008, when uh, Moscow was really pressuring them in order to recognize Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and they resisted that. And during the Ukraine crisis, they have consistently opposed Moscow, in spite of being extremely dependent, uh, totally dependent, I might add, on economic support from Moscow in order to have a fairly bizarre functioning economy, uh, trying to at least survive. Um, and I think we have an interest in uh, them being successful in preserving their territorial integrity and their sovereign decision-making rights and should find a way of expressing that without, for that matter, going back on the human rights agenda. So um, how do you think we should do that, Bessa? Do you think we need to rethink um, our approach on... Uh, you know, Because we've, we've had this kind of... I mean, Belarus has been our Cuba for the last few years, um, not in the sense that we've completely shut them off. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, travel back and forth across the border, but it's one of the few countries that we have tried to to isolate that we've had sanctions towards. It's not had a huge impact on Belarusian politics. If you go there, it does feel like you're going in, into a time machine uh, as much as anything else. It's an incredible uh, trip back to, to what the Soviet Union must have looked like before it started hitting real economic difficulties. Like Kadri can tell us whether that's right or wrong because you actually lived through this <laughs> in a more real sense. But what, what lessons did you take from that, Vesla, um, our policy regime? In a way, Belarus to me looked like the place that uh, the Soviet Union would have looked like in the year 2015 if it hadn't fallen apart and, you know, if it had remained uh, um, kind of a unitary place with a centrally uh, held power, um, no, private, no major privatization, no oligarchs, one... Uh, um, center of redistribution um, and a place without freedom and, and, and without democracy. And this is, um, uh, as Carl was also mentioning, the very bizarre economic model that basically lives uh, on uh, subsistences from um, the natural resources of their bigger neighbors. So it's a, it's a time machine in a future that never really happened. Um, the the main conclusion to me is that a place like Belarus can still uh, deviate from Russia's uh, strategic interests, um, which, if it's possible for Belarus, it's possible for for others in the region as well. 
and uh, and this is an opening that uh, the West should be able to use um, in order at least to have some kind of a dialogue uh, uh, with this country, but also with similar countries. Uh, because this spheres of influence concept uh, that Kremlin seems to uh, to support and to aim for is uh, really not happening when we look at Belarus. And uh, um, the the point of uh, of the of the West consolidating um, in some kind of concept against uh, Russia's uh, vision uh, for Europe is exactly this being able to talk to to uh, the people and to the um, countries in the neighborhood and to change their um, behavior if um, uh, their strategic calculations do not um, align with the Russian ones. Well, one of the most striking things out of discussions was when people explained that the, the big casualty of the crisis in Ukraine is Europe's reputation in Belarus, that Lukashenko has got this big boost because that's what happens if you start messing around with crazy ideas of freedom and coming to the streets, that you basically unleash um, chaos. And um, so one of the striking things about... um, the, the way that it, things work in this parliament. We went, when we went to the parliament where Lukashenko has, what, 302 out of 307 of the members of parliament, um, is the extent to which political space has been and hope has been kind of extinguished. And they trade off all of the problems of, of transition in other countries and use that to, to get people to to come back to the status quo. So no matter how bad things get in other places, they become more wedded to the to, to, yeah. to the current circumstances. It was an interesting perspective in, in many ways. I was actually struck about the uh, discussion about economics. Uh, many people from our group suggested that you should privatise, and they, Belarusians would point out, but see what privatisation has resulted in, in Russia and, and Ukraine, in oligarchization. And, and they are, of course, correct. And jumping back to Ukraine for just a second, I think for Ukraine it's also crucial how they deal with oligarchs because it was uh, seen as a sign of something important by many people that oligarch Kolomoisky was now deprived of his governor's post. But I think it's very important that Poroshenko doesn't repeat basically Putin's uh, track record here. Because Putin also... Uh, brought oligarchs sort of... Into line. Into line, exactly. Uh, but did so in a very dysfunctional way. Uh, all punishment was arbitrary and could be executed at any time. So that basically put oligarchs in a very vulnerable situation where they could have no influence, good or bad, and, and maybe more bad than good. So it's important that oligarchs... The solution to the oligarchy in Ukraine will be of transparent, seen as fair and one-off, and that doesn't uh, that doesn't disturb the economy too much. But uh, back to uh, Belarus, yes, it's um, 
the request really was that please uh, save our our sovereignty and independence, even though we will uh, not become a democracy in, in your understanding anytime soon. At least most of them were open about that. And I think Europe really needs to think about how to do it, because some of our uh, crafted policies uh, are not suited to that. I mean, the principle more for more is, is not quite applicable in, in that situation. You need to have different levels of, of engagement or different conversations compartmentalised. But do you think, Carl, that we need... Because that was one of the interesting things in the way their political space, um, they were arguing to us, the foreign minister was arguing to us, is partly contingent on their economic options. And what they've seen in theory is that Europe and others are happy to talk to them. But because their economy is so dependent on Russia and because Russia's been so damaged by the sanctions, their economic space has been shrinking recently. So the foreign minister said to us, in a way, if you want us to maintain our sovereignty and to be able to build relationships with others, you need to give us more economic space. Is that just a self-serving argument or is that true? Well, I don't know what it really means uh, because... um in theory, if they were to be part of the, or asked to be part of the deep and free and comprehensive free trade, free trade agreements, I mean, that could be considered. But they made very clear from the very beginning that they have no interest for that. Yeah. Uh, for the very reason that the Belarus economy is blatantly uncompetitive on any sort of free and competitive and open European or global market. Uh, they are sitting in a very heavy dependency uh, on subsidies from Russia, and it's getting more Difficult. One, one of their number one means of earning money was that they were previously buying oil uh, at sort of domestic Russian prices and selling it at world market prices. And then they were sort of making sort of $50 a barrel roughly. So they were sitting on sort of an oil field all by themselves, which was based on corruption, really. Now sort of oil prices globally are down too. Russian domestic levels, and they've lost their major source of income uh, due to the movement in oil prices. Add to that uh, something that uh, we haven't studied as of yet, and it's too early to study, but the fact that there has been enormous movements between the currencies. Mm. I mean, the the Ukrainian currency down the most, the Russian second, and the Belarus currency down 30-35%. I mean, this is going to have huge distortion effects on their economies. And they will have to sort that out. Uh, there's very little we can do to help. Uh, they haven't even asked for it. Same goes for Georgia and Moldova, by the way. Same goes for them, obviously, yes. So what should we take away from that after we... we um, you, you kind of take... I mean, there is, it does mean that they are certainly interested in, in wider engagement. The, fact, the very fact they let us into the country was seen by some of the ambassadors... As, as incredible because I don't think you're seen as a major friend of of of, uh, of Minsk over over the years. Um, so they thought some of the ambassadors I was talking to thought there was actually a very good sign that they gave you a visa and that they allowed our mm-hmm. our delegation in um, at all. Um, but at the same time, their dependence is so great on Russia that you know I think there's a limit to how far we're going to be able to pull them away because oh, yeah. they're not going to. No, and they, in, in private conversations, they make that clear. They say, uh, uh, we know what the Russians are up to. Um, uh, we consider it a threat. Um, we want to sort of oppose them as much as you can. But we know exactly where we are. And there's no way that we can move closer to Brussels because we are too exposed. But we want to 
use our leverage as much as we can. And anything that you can do from your side in order to increase our freedom of maneuver is appreciated. But you should know our limits. Yeah. In some ways, I thought that I mean, there is lots of talk about Ukraine and geopolitical solution for Ukraine, non-NATO status, etc. I think that is all wishful thinking. That's, that's, that's not possible. But in some ways, uh, and this is really history repeating itself as a farce, Belarus might occupy a sort of Finland-like place. Of well, don't mention Finland because it's a separate issue. But anyhow. It is. Yeah. But actually, the, the phrase they used was the Singapore of, um, of Eastern <laughs> Europe. And I think that, in a way, it, um, it's an interesting time to be having that discussion because we it is, I think, the 50th, 60th anniversary of the Bandung Conference um, next week, where, which was essentially this uh, big moment of non-alignment when countries tried to carve out a path for themselves between different blocks. And... Um, the, the the phrases we heard most in 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 both Minsk and Kiev were about these kind of in between countries that are trying to steer their way between different people. And as Kiev actually decides to end its non-aligned status and to to join the West and to reinvent itself as a country that's part of something, um, we might see that um, the Minsk is the new um, poster child for a for a Zwischenland in the. Wow. <laughs> no, they have this, which I can understand. I mean, they are they are trying to play every card that is there. They're playing the China card. Uh, they try to get some of us to go in the middle of the night to look at a deserted field on the outskirts of Minsk, where they hope that uh, billions of Chinese dollars was going to be invested in some sort of enormous facilities. Um, the likelihood of that happening, I would say, is uh, slight. <laughs> Uh, but that only did but illustrates. We didn't check. Sorry, we didn't check. But 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 um, that shows that they are playing every card that they can in order to increase their room of maneuver, which is understandable. Well, I think we'll all be coming back to these topics over the next few months as we move towards the the Riga um, summit and these donor conferences that I was talking about. And also, as the EU has to make its decisions about the about sanctions in the future. But thanks a lot for for a really good discussion. Brings us to our last segment, which is the, the bookshelf segment. So, Kadri, what's on your books? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? What are you reading? I was actually, during that same trip, I was rereading uh, an old book uh, from 2000, and that's uh, Vladimir Putin's first book of interviews. I, I think many of the ideas that inform his policies these days are laid out there in a, in, a, in a pretty natural fashion, not yet uh, affected by what has happened later on. So I, I, I find that quite interesting. But in parallel, and to give you a heads up, we have uh, a very interesting essay collection coming about Ukraine. What does Ukraine think? So I'm reading these in the sidelines. What about you, Carl? What are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm, I just finished reading Stephen Kotkin's uh, first volume of his uh, three-volume biography of Stalin. Uh, the first volume is what it could have been, six, seven hundred pages, uh, covering the period up until 1928. Uh, but it's really a history of a uh, substantial part of the world seen through the prism of the personality of Joseph Stalin and what happened with him. 
and it's, uh, it's 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 really a very good book. It's going to be talked about. And it's optimistic, probably mm. still. Well, in the I 20s. mean, <laughs> it was really uh, things were pretty bad, has to be said. But after 1928, they went really bad. So the second volume will be horrific. I guess. You're looking forward to it. What about um, you, Bessa? In in this uh, same uh, oops, or let's say similar vein, I went into a, a, a bookshop in Minsk. Um, and I got uh, a book which is called uh, Shield and Sword, and it's um, Shield and Sword is uh, the <clears throat> motto of the um, Soviet state security. Um, so it's a it's a novel about um, the James Bond of uh, of uh, the Soviet Union, and it's a book written in 1968, which was then done into a movie, and uh, it was uh, republished several times and re-edited. What is interesting about this book is that it was one of the, I don't know, maybe 30 books of this kind that you could find in this same store at the same moment. So there is a big revival of the kind of Soviet narrative, obviously, from around the Second World War, and... uh, and how the security establishment could change the world. Oh, well, I was reading similar, well, same sort of theme books during our trips as well. I was reading two remarkable and very, very different books about Ukraine. Well, firstly, uh, our colleague Andrew Wilson's book on the Ukraine crisis, what it means for the West, um, where he basically uh, argues that the best way of understanding um the politics of the 21st century in that part of the world is, is to he paraphrases Norman Stone who said that the 20th century could best be explained by the, with the phrase Germany goes ape the, the 21st century according to Andy can best be explained with the idea of Russia going ape um, but the other book which sets itself up as a kind of counterpart to Andy's thesis is is by Richard Sakwa called Frontline Ukraine and he argues that uh completely different explanation for what's going on at the moment which is more to do with the intersection of two things firstly a crisis within ukraine between two ideas of ukrainian identity a uh, kind of um unitary orange uh, notion of ukrainian nationhood and a more kind of plural confused um blue uh, notion of ukrainianness um which uh which which have been conflict- conflicting with each other and which were conflicting on on the maidan that that has somehow also got tied up with a wider crisis of european order um which he uh sees in much more structural terms he thinks it's less about russia's behavior and more about the asymmetric end of the cold war and the fact that um there wasn't a space created for uh, for for Russia in the architecture which was uh, developed after the end of the Cold War. So two radically different ways of looking at exactly the same topics which are in internal dialogue with each other throughout. So I recommend not just both of those books, but reading them together is a, is a very, very interesting experience. So that brings to an end uh, what's, I think, been a fascinating discussion about our, our recent trip to, to Minsk and to Kiev. They are links uh, to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, www.ecfr.eu. And we are also going to shortly be publishing a policy brief which draws on many of the lessons that we learned from that trip, as well as this collection of essays on what does Ukraine think, which Kadri talked about. 
So from uh, Vesela Chenova, Kadri Leek, Carl Bilt and myself, uh, Mark Leonard, it's thank you for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel. Many thanks and goodbye for now.